This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP, the federal leader in retirement planning seminars sponsored by WEPA. Join NITP for an hour of plain talk on planning your future. You've got questions, they've got answers. Good morning and welcome to the December 18th, 2023 For Your Benefit radio show. I'm Bob Lines, and we have a special guest, Bob Bronstein, fellow seminar presenter, federal benefit specialist, and um, nor of all things. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Bob. Good to see you. It's been a while. Is it great to see you? You don't age. <laughs> well, I was going to say the same thing about you, but uh, I don't know. But you know better. Maybe we're just aging. We're aging in place. What can I say? <laughs> well, we're, having a, we're having a good time. So we're talking about hot, hot topics and federal benefits. We're going to talk about the annuity calculation, that thing you get when you retire, your pension. But let's call it an annuity because that's what it is. Fegley, five-year rule. Medicare is different enrollment periods. Long-term care, what to consider while the federal plan is suspended. And we have a bunch of questions. So, Bob, um, what are some of the hot topics? Well, we'll start off very global. Okay. When I do webinars and seminars, um, I sort of lean on things as far as hot topics from the standpoint that, you know, people know about them, but there are nuances associated with them that they don't know. And one question I typically get, and you raised, you know, we're talking about the annuity calculation. What's the annuity calculation based on? And questions tend to manifest around something called the high three average salary. Now, people ask, what is the high three? And my simple answer is, it's the income that you earn during your highest three consecutive years of earnings averaged. And I stop there and I say, any questions? So considering you being a consumer of this information, Bob, if I said that to you, what would your next question be? I don't fully understand one, the three-year rule. And do I really get something when I retire? I think he called it a pension or potato, potato. Is it, is it a pension? Or is it an yeah, annuity? Isn't a pension and annuity pretty much the same thing? Pretty uh, much you know, the same. Yeah. It's, it's a monthly payment uh, that's indexed for inflation. You get cost of living adjustments every year based on the consumer price index and how high that goes up. So it's guaranteed income. But the, the basis for the federal plan, first of all, is based on high three. High, highest three consecutive earning rates. A typical question that I get from people is, uh, can it be my highest three salaries? And my answer is, well, yeah, it could be. I mean, let's say, for instance, you're getting close to the end of your career. Uh, you're, you've reached step 10 of your GS level, so you're not getting any more within range increases. Um, you're getting pay raises every year because the federal government gets a raise generally in January every year. So maybe you've only gotten three pay raises over your last three years, and those are your highest three earning years. But every now and again, what if during your highest three earning years, you got a pay raise at the beginning in January, uh, you still you weren't at the top of your grade level. So you got a within range increase one year, a quality step increase the following year and the two other pay raises. You have five different rates of pay and those five different rates of pay. You have each one at a specific period of time during the three years. What did you earn against each rate? Well, I earned 40,000 against this rate. I earned 65000 at this one, 90000 at this one. You add all of that up, and it could be a function of four, five, or six different pay rates in the three-year period, and that gets averaged. So it could be your highest three salaries if they've only received three pay rates during the high three, but if you've received more than it's more than your high three salaries that are being averaged because you have more different more salary rates. Does that make sense? It makes sense, but my, my pencil's tired. Um <laughs> Sorry about that. So I, I, I appreciate the explanation. Because I think it's, it's hard for anyone. Now, you know, I'm a bean counter, so you would think I would understand it, but I usually have to call you. Bob, now, what's this high three again? And, and, and how can you um, do better than whatever my calculation is? So tell us more about what somebody should at least know. Maybe not the heavy duty stuff, but, you know, what do they need to know on their glide path to retirement? 
Okay, well, let's stay with the high three for a while because there's still a few other questions that have come to me about this. <clears throat> what if my highest three pay years are not at the end of my career? An example of that might be someone who took a downgrade and continued working for three or four years. And during that period of time in the lower grade, the last part of their career, they never recovered the higher rate of pay they received from which they took the downgrade. That's one instance. Uh, what if, for example, <clears throat> I always love this one. I worked in the San Francisco Bay Area for my entire career. I'm now a GS 13 step 10. And I worked to deal with my agency to move me back to my hometown at the same grade, GS 13 step 10, but my hometown is just outside Kansas City. Well, what's the difference between Kansas City and San Francisco? And the answer is locality pay. The locality pay is probably the highest in that Bay Area in the country. And you lose a lot of money from locality pay when you move to a, a rest of USA area like Kansas. So I would say to that individual, it's likely, even though your grade didn't drop, that because of the drop in locality pay, you left your high three along with your heart in San Francisco which is a uh, you know, really ter terrible joke. It's a dad joke, and I tell it. And sometimes I get groans, and groans are good. You know, it's a good thing. So no the, high three, the high three doesn't have to be at the end. Then the question that comes right after that, and I'm going to pause after this because I want to make sure you've taken it all in, is, well, do those years absolutely have to be consecutive, or can I pick out my highest three earning years no matter when they were during a career and average those? And the answer to that question is no. You can't just pick the years out. They must be consecutive no matter where they are. 99, 98% of the time, it's going to be the last three years that are averaged. But when your highest pay is deeper in your career before the end of the career, then the, the software programs that the agencies use to calculate the high three will find it no matter where it is. Any questions about that? Yeah. So if you go to um, 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 a location where the locality uh, rate is is jacked up. So for that period of time that I'm there, I know I'm not going to spend the rest of my career there. I'm going to come back home. Is there kind of like like a seismograph with the calculation of what the high three is? Yeah. Home, it goes <clears throat> up and then comes back down. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, again, everybody only has one high three and it typically comes at the end of the career. But it might not, due to the circumstances I described before, taking a downgrade or leaving a higher locality area. The good news is that it never drops below what it is. In other words, if you've achieved that four or five years ago <clears throat> and you went from, say, a GS-12 to a GS-9, uh, you're never going to lose the high three and you're continuing to add service. Of course, you're getting paid less along the way toward the end. But your high three is going to be determined by the highest rates of pay you receive, which could have been earlier. That's the good news. Now, <clears throat> the other thing, since we're talking about annuities, high three is the first component of determining the annuity. Uh, what does the formula that produces the annuity actually look like? And typically, and I'm looking mostly at first people these days, every year of service that you have that's creditable <clears throat> is 1% times the high three. So if I have 30 years of service, that's 30% times my $80,000 high three, or that would be an annuity of $24,000 a year before we divide it by 12 or take anything else. <clears throat> the question that typically comes to me, though, <clears throat> is there is an opportunity to increase that percentage <clears throat> to 1.1%. People say, what are the requirements to get the 1.1%. And requirement number one is that you cannot separate from federal service until you are 62 years of age. Now, this kind of runs counter to when you can actually retire under FERS, because in FERS, you can retire at 57 with 30 years of service, 60 with 20 years of service. Those are full benefits, full annuity benefits with other insurance. But to get the 1.1, you got to stick around until you're 62. And in addition to sticking around and not separating until you're 62, you have to have 20 or more years of creditable service to get the 1.1. So here's the question that I get that 
confounds me after I explain this, but believe me, I know it's this stuff is, as you say, makes your hair hurt. Is if I'm the government at age 60 with 20 years of service, that's an absolute retirement at 1%. Will my annuity go up to 1.1% when I turn 62, which is two years after I retire? And the answer is, well, no, you, you missed the first criteria. You left before you were 62. So it's off the table. So the 1.1 requires that you leave no earlier than age 62, separate, retire, no earlier than that age, and have 20 or more years of federal service. Does that make sense? It makes, it makes sense for, for this last um, three minutes. <clears throat> After that, I have your home phone number. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. This stuff tends to roll off. I've been in the business too long. Yeah, but you make it understandable. So uh, that's that's the tough part because this isn't easy to uh, always understand. Well, I, I didn't know I, I you know I was precluded, uh, but now we're, we're we're getting clear on that. So sure. the high three. I think we understand now what the high three is. Everybody, right? I do. All right. Well, yeah, I, you do. And I think you've tra translated that out for, for us. So what have you found surprising with people? They're looking at retirement and they think they're going to get X, but they're going to get Y. Now, Y might be less than X or it might be more than X. So what does that person, what does the, the general person need to do? When do they need to start to look at this so they're fully informed of what they're going to get when they retire? Retire. I strongly suggest a mid-career examination of where things stand. You know, you've been on the rolls 12, 15 years. It's, at that point in time, it's time to start delving into what the benefits package is and when you start really you know, getting the qualifications. And then you, you probably also want to go to like an NITP webinar or seminar um, five years out. Uh, because that begins to really cement, you know, it becomes very, very complex stuff. You want to... The closer you get to it, the, the, as early as possible, the better it is. Some organizations, you know this, Bob, are actually giving new employees a certain degree of financial literacy, and they're introducing them to the value of the federal benefits package, the pension, the portability of health insurance and life insurance, and you know what, what is necessary to stay the course to get those benefits. I think that's, it's not only a good recruitment tool, but it's a good retention tool. And for the, for, to answer your question, the earlier you learn, the better it is, because then it becomes iterative. Then you're hearing things that you know, and it basically cements the knowledge. Mid-career, five years out, and then within a year or two of retiring, do it again. You can't get too much information on this stuff because, you know, it's, it's just very complicated. Okay, Andrew tells us it's time to take a break. And... <clears throat> We will listen to what WEPA can do for the listeners. Times have changed, but WEPA's mission remains the same, to promote the health, welfare, and financial well-being of civilian federal employees. WEPA offers group term life insurance to civilian federal employees with up to $1.5 in coverage, regardless of salary. As a WEPA member, you can access exclusive rates and benefits not available to the general public. How does this compare to Fegley? Unlike Fegley, WEPA's coverage amounts are not capped by your salary. WEPA will cover your family as well. For your children, WEPA offers double the benefits that Fegley offers. And for your spouse, WEPA offers 20 times more coverage than Fegley. 20 times more coverage. WEPA's coverage is also portable if you decide to leave the federal government or retire. You can even supplement or replace your existing policy. See how much you could save by visiting waepa.org today. Welcome back to For Your Benefit. We're here today with Bob Bronstein. Bob is a good person, fellow seminar presenter, but more importantly, he knows federal benefits backwards, forwards, sideways, up and down. And so we were talking about the annuity calculation, vaguely five-year rule. But to be frank, Bob, I forgot what bullet point we're on. Well, why don't we go to the Fegley five-year rule, or we'll exhaust all of our time in the annuity calculation. I think I beat that horse to death. Uh, what's unique about Fegley anyway? Fegley is Federal Employees Group Life Insurance. We qualify for it when we come on board. We don't even need a medical examination for the first 60 days. 
There are qualifying life events like birth of children, getting married, where you can increase the coverage without a medical exam. But the big questions tend to come in the seminars about the five-year rule for Fegley. I've been covered under Fegley for five years, and I'm retiring. Can I take that with me? And the answer is generally, yeah, you can. And then there's a term in there that people tend to miss, some people do, called desired level of coverage. What people typically do when they are retiring, and Bob, you're going to know this as much as I do being with your financial background, is they're looking at the liabilities they used to have, which have gone. To give you an example, my children have launched successfully. Uh, I've paid down all of my unsecured credit card debt. I paid off my mortgage. And I just had an aha moment on my leave and earnings statement. My Fegley option B coverage, which can be up to five times salary, just skyrocketed in cost. This happens when you have your 55th birthday and when you have your 60th birthday. Every five years, it goes up dramatically so from 54 to 55 and 59 to 60. So people are reducing the coverage. Now, I'm talking about the kind of one-off situations. What if I determine I need more insurance? What do I need to know about increasing Fegley uh, at any point in time? Condition number one, you still have to be employed. Once you're retired, you cannot increase your Fegley. Uh, in order to increase Fegley, you can do so without medical exam if you have a qualifying life event. Are you getting married? Are you getting divorced? Are you having children? Are you adopting children? Maybe none of those things are happening toward the end of career. What would be another opportunity for someone to increase their Fegley if they don't have a qualifying life event? Well, I'm a military member in the reserves and I'm being activated to active duty. I'm going to be on leave without pay for my position. I could, or maybe not going into harm's way, but even if I'm not, Fegley says that's an opportunity to raise your insurance to whatever level you can within the parameters of Fegley without going through a medical exam. Okay, well, what if I'm not having a qualifying life event? What if I'm not going into the military? What do I have to do to increase my Fegley? Simple. You have to pass the physical, the medical exam. And then last but not least, what if I don't have any of those three and I can't pass the physical? And the answer would be, well, every 9, 10, 11 years, Fegley does offer an open enrollment. The last one, I believe, was in 2016. And if you want to enroll for the first time or increase whatever you have without a medical exam, you can do so within this open enrollment. Uh, which doesn't occur every year. It's like once every 10 or 11 years. Now, when you do this, Fregley knows, OPM knows, that you're probably doing so during a, an open enrollment because you can't pass the physical. So they don't make that coverage effective for a year. People who enrolled during the open enrollment of 2016 did not see that increased or new coverage become effective until 2017. But here is where people tend to lose sight of what the desired level of coverage rule is. I dealt with an individual who did this and wanted to retire at the end of 2019. Elevated the coverage during the open enrollment period, had it on the books for two and a half years, and then was retiring and thinking, well, I've had my Fegley for five years and I'm retiring on an immediate pension, last federal workday being followed by first federal retirement day, and I have five years of Fegley coverage, only to find out that his increased coverage, the desired level, was not in effect for five years. And he needed that insurance and couldn't get it anywhere else because of compromising conditions. So in order to carry the increased level, which at that point in time had only been in effect for two and a half years, he had to delay his retirement for two and a half years. It was really? that. Wow. Yeah. It was that critical to him. Most people are reducing their coverage. They're not even thinking about it. But if you need a higher level of coverage and it hasn't been in effect for the five continuous years before you leave the government, you got to stick around until that five-year marker hits. And that's, that's kind of the nuance associated with Fegley, which makes it different from health insurance, which is you could be under any plan for the last five years. You could have self-only. You could have uh, family coverage. You could be the family member of your federal spouse's plan if you're a Fed. And any combination of those things meets the five-year rule. So it's not quite as nuanced as Fegley, which says desired level of coverage, which most of the time doesn't matter. 
people are reducing their coverage and you can reduce your coverage at any time. You can only increase it under the circumstances that I described before, but whatever you want to take with you, if you've had that in effect for five years, fine. You can take that with you. You can take reduced coverage with you, but if you've increased it, make sure that that's in effect for five years. And if you haven't increased it yet, but need to, and you're going to retire within less than five years, you probably want to be looking for insurance outside of Fegley because that higher level of coverage is not going to cover you once you separate if it has not been in effect for five years. Any questions about that? <clears throat> Any questions? Yeah. Start over again. <laughs> what have you found? What have you, uh, when you deal with people as they come closer to the um, retirement line, do you find that they're well-prepared, ill-prepared, don't want to know? I would say most are pretty well-prepared, but there are so many complex rules that it's easy to get confused. You know, for example, civil service offset versus civil service regular. Sometimes people think their social security benefit is being reduced when in fact it's their pension. And I can understand that. Uh, enrolling in Medicare, people enroll in Medicare when they turn 65, not recognizing that if they're still working and they're still getting health insurance through their current employer, Medicare isn't going to be the primary payer. And it's part B is very expensive. And if it doesn't pay for anything, why should I be enrolled in it? And the answer is you don't have to be. But I'm already getting into a topic that we're going to discuss. I think people have a, a general knowledge. Once again, it goes back to that great question you asked me before. How often should I you know, update my knowledge? When should I first really begin coming, con becoming concerned about what the benefits package will be for me? What am I actually working toward? Mid-career, I'd say at least at mid-career, uh, you know, maybe five years later and then two or three years before you retire. Every time you do this, it turns on another light switch. It, it kind of like cements it into your brain. And then when you're about to be out processed, it's just kind of a, a relearning of things that you used to know. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I knew that. Wow. <laughs> so where do we go next, boss? My pen you know, is I, empty. I kind of, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about Medicare, uh, because I do get a lot of questions about that. Interestingly, when I was a federal benefits specialist in the government, uh, we didn't get into Medicare too much. Reason being that people were retiring pretty much at 55, between 55 and 60. And that was an area of expertise that just wasn't, you know, part of our bailiwick as federal benefits people. I've learned most of my Medicare knowledge uh, working for NITP, which has been terrific. You know, I knew about it to begin with, but I've gotten really into it. Where people tend to be confused is with respect to what is known as the enrollment period. And there are four of them. Let's talk about the initial enrollment period first. I am turning 65. I am retired. My initial enrollment period would be beginning three months prior to my 65th birthday month. So if my birthday month, for example, was in June, Let's see, we go back May, April, March. My initial enrollment period began March 1st. It would include the month of June. That's my birthday month. And it would go three months beyond it. July, August, September. September 30th. A seven-month period of time for me to enroll. And I wouldn't, if I enrolled, you know, in Medicare A, Medicare A doesn't have a premium because I've been paying the premium through the payroll tax. Part B does have a premium. No penalties, and I'll start, you know, paying the Part B premium. That's the initial enrollment period. Retired. I'm retired. I'm no longer getting health insurance through a current employer. Now, many of the federal people that we're dealing with, because uh, we're dealing with all federal people, all federal folks understand that if they meet the criteria to carry their health insurance into retirement, it's the same plan or the same plans, the same opportunities. FEHB follows you into retirement. But the difference is once you're retired, it's no longer being deducted from your federal pay from an employer. It's now being deducted by OPM. It's retirement based. And if you're 65 and you're in that situation, that's when you have the initial Medicare enrollment period. Now, let's fast forward for a second. Not fast forward. Let's go to another scenario where I'm turning 65, but I'm still working for HHS, for example. 
as an active employee, having my health insurance deducted biweekly from my pay as a federal employee. Current employment is giving me my health insurance and I'm turning 65. I find out that, well, you know, I thought I was supposed to enroll in Medicare when I turned 65, but as long as I have health insurance through my employment, Medicare is not going to be the primary payer. So I think about this and I say, well, wait a minute, you know, part A, right now I'm paying the payroll tax for that anyway. Why don't I enroll in part A? It's not going to have a premium when I retire. And, and, you know, heck, I'm 65. Even though it's a secondary payer to my health insurance, if I'm hospitalized for a period of time as an inpatient, and let's say I need some recuperative or rehabilitative care or some durable medical equipment, Part A would back up my health insurance, which is kind of lean in that area. But Part B isn't going to do anything for me. Typically, when you have outpatient visits with doctors and other healthcare providers, you might be paying a copay for the visit. If you have an X-ray or a CAT scan or an MRI, you're going to be paying coinsurance for those procedures. You have an annual deductible. And sometimes people have the misbegotten notion that when they enroll in Part B, when they're still getting health insurance through their employer, that Part B is going to cover those costs that the health insurance levies upon you. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Part B, doesn't, Part B doesn't pay for any of those things. So they're saying, well, why did I enroll in Part B? And they're being told, well, you shouldn't have because you would have had a special enrollment period, irrespective of how old you happen to be, when you retire and your health insurance then migrates to OPM. And then I would, so I'd say, so you're telling me if I leave the government and stop working uh, at, say, 70 years of age, and my health insurance is the same, but it goes to OPM, I have an opportunity to enroll in Medicare at 70 without a penalty? And the answer is yes. In that scenario, you would have an eight-month special enrollment period beginning the day after you retire and your health insurance through your employer then migrates to OPM. Now, I've said a lot, and I think you might have some questions. So I'm going to pause for a second. Okay. <clears throat> must the, the three years we started talking about earlier on, must the three years begin averaging be consecutive? Okay. You're talking about the high three? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. The high three average salary, yes, has to be consecutive. And branching back to what we were just talking about, the initial enrollment period is typically seven months surrounding your 65th birthday if you no longer have health insurance through a current employer. Now, if you do have health insurance through a current employer and are turning 65, you absolutely want to delay enrolling in Medicare B until your health insurance is no longer through employment. And that could be at 66, 67, 68, people who continue to work for a current employer with health insurance. Now, in my case, when I retired from the government, I, you know, my health insurance is through uh, the Office of Personnel Management. And it has been since I was 49 years of age. So I've been doing a lot of work, but I never changed that health insurance. So my initial enrollment period for Medicare was when I turned 65. But I talked to a lot of people who are working into the late 60s, early 70s for the federal service, still having their health insurance deducted from their federal pay, and they shouldn't even think about Medicare B until they finally retire from federal service. And they could be, you know, considerably older. Now, do do people feel bad about this? I mean, if they have to wait, what do they lose by waiting? Or they got, they got no option. That, I, that's my take. Yeah, they don't lose really anything. As a matter of fact, if you picked <laughs> up Part B and you were still getting health insurance through your employer, you could be paying a pretty hefty chunk for Medicare B because it's based on something called modified adjusted gross income from a couple of years ago. And that's going to be high when you're working. So here you are paying this exorbitant premium for something that really doesn't do anything for you because it's, it's in the secondary position to health insurance, which is always the primary payer when it's coming through your current employment. So don't pick up Part B. So not really losing anything. Now, people do seem to think, however, and that's a great question, Bob, that if I don't eventually enroll in Medicare, I could face an economic catastrophe. Here's the thing about Medicare for FEHB subscribers. And I'm, this is not advice. This is just knowledge. Medicare enrollment is a choice. 
there are many people because of their income who will experience an exceptionally high cost for Medicare Part B. Medicare Part B and health insurance, when one wraps around the other, eliminates something called the out-of-pocket costs. You no longer have co-pays, deductibles, or co-insurance, but you do have to pay a Medicare B premium. What if the cost of that premium, let's say it's a couple, is $10,000 more per year on top of the health insurance? And what if they're typically only coming out of pocket for co-pays, deductibles, and co-insurance with the health insurance alone, 2000 bucks? Does it make sense to pick up additional insurance that's going to cost you $10,000 more per year to save $2,000? And the answer is no, it certainly doesn't make financial sense. So the good news is that the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program says, fine, you want to continue with health insurance alone. And if you think you can manage your co-pays, deductibles, and co-insurance up to your annual catastrophic maximum by yourself without having to spend extra money for Part B, that is your choice. It's not mandatory. And you're not going to face a medical catastrophe without Medicare because Medicare, excuse me, FEHB programs, all of them have an out-of-pocket maximum every year. Now, for many of them, it's six or $7,000 per individual where you'd have co-pays, deductibles, and co-insurance up to that amount. But if you're a cancer patient getting a lot of treatment, so on and so forth, you're probably going to go well over that. And the good news is when you hit that maximum, the health insurance for the rest of the plan year picks up 100% of the cost. So nasty as having to come out of pocket 7,000 bucks would be, it's not going to make you bankrupt. And that's the way FEHB continues, even if you don't have Medicare. Is that making any sense? It makes a ton of sense, but I think I need a little time to relax before we go through the next discussion. So let's listen to what an ITP can do for the listeners. Who do you trust when making your most important decisions? National Institute of Transition Planning has been the trusted source for federal retirement planning, serving new, mid-career, and pre-retirement federal employees for more than 30 years. NITP's subject matter experts bring more than 800 years of collective expertise on federal benefits, financial, transition, and estate planning. Visit NITPinc.com. That's NITPinc.com to sign up for their free monthly newsletter and information about free webinars. Are you at the mid-career stage of your federal career, or do you plan to retire in the next five years and wonder if you are prepared for retirement? No matter what career stage you are, it's never too early to dot the I's and cross the T's. NITP now offers online open enrollment training to help you understand your federal benefits package and financial planning options with tips and tools to plan and fine-tune your retirement planning goals. Visit NITPINC.com to download the current brochure and calendar. All righty. Welcome back to the final final leg of today's show. We're here with Bob Bronstein, federal benefits specialist, and we're talking about hot topics and federal benefits. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> what else is hot? Well, let's, we could be before, we, a week. <laughs> before we leave Medicare, there are a few more things I wanted to talk about. Uh, we talked about the initial enrollment period around your 65th birthday. The special enrollment period for people who are over 65 but still have health insurance through their current employer. We also have something called a general enrollment period, which is January to March of each year. And these are for people who decide to enroll in Part B late because initially they didn't during their initial or special enrollment period. So if you didn't enroll in Part B to begin with and then you think it's worth doing, you have the opportunity to enroll late during any January through March general enrollment period. Now, the caveat that we always tell people is that if you do enroll late, there could be a penalty. For every 12 months that passes beyond the time you could have had Medicare B but didn't, there's a 10% permanent monthly penalty levied on the premium that you pay. Now, the penalty is always based on what the lowest premium of the year happens to be. But if you were, say, three uh, 12-month periods late, in addition to paying the premium, if you enroll in Medicare B late during January and March, coverage generally begins one month later, you'd be paying the premium plus a 30% penalty, and the penalty is assessed on what the lowest premium that year is. That's the late enrollment. Where people are really confused, Bob, is the stuff that's being advertised on TV this time of year. It's called the open enrollment, which is from October 
15th, I believe, to December 7th. And this is for Medicare Part C, also known as the new Medicare. Medicare Part C, if you have it, you have to have Medicare A and B, basically manages all of your care. You have one insurance card, and that's basically what you use to submit to your various providers and so on. Now, Medicare C programs are being advertised by the likes of many celebrities, Joe Namath, William Shatner, a few other ones. And they're being advertised as, you know, these are, you know, really great plans. Uh, they have no premiums. Uh, call, see if you're eligible. They'll give you rides to doctors. They'll give you silver sneaker gym memberships. And many of them can work out for certain individuals. But you want to be careful when you're considering a Part C arrangement. If you're enrolling in Part C, number one, you have to be enrolled in Medicare A and B. You could suspend, if you wanted to, your FEHB coverage because you won't really need it. But Part C plans oftentimes will have smaller networks of providers. So the first thing you want to do is make sure your trusted providers are within the network of the Part C plan. Then, most importantly, even though there's no premium, understand that when you do visit your healthcare providers or need procedures, there will continue to be cost sharing, co-pays, deductibles, co-insurance. So as you age and as you become more ill, that zero premium, you know, sort of is counterbalanced by having to come out of pocket for costs that you otherwise, you know, weren't having when you were younger. That's something to consider. And if you are planning to use out-of-network providers, you're going to spend more money on that too. So conversely, the folks who enroll in Medicare A and B who make that decision, many feds do, 70 plus percent who are retired, uh, who enroll in Medicare, then they basically have a, an FEHB plan, which has Medicare Advantage features. The Medicare Advantage features waive the copays, deductibles, and coinsurance that they used to have to pay. Those are gone. And give them a little bit of a kickback, eight or $900 a person per year to defray the cost of the extra Medicare B premium. That works well as a wraparound. But Part C might be there for you. The majority of people that I've talked to don't usually opt into Part C. They keep their FEHB plan, they're enrolled in Medicare A and B, and they use, you know, either an open season or a once in a lifetime qualifying life event to change their health plan to one of the FEHB plans that have Medicare Advantage features. Those features typically, once again, are waiver of cost sharing. Cost sharing is a fancy term for copays, deductibles, coinsurance. Those are going to be gone. And as a further incentive, we're going to give you eight or nine hundred dollars a year uh, for every subscriber to defray the cost of this extra premium you're picking up. This arrangement for many allows them to keep their monthly outlay for insurance, even for the two coverages, very close to what they're paying for the single health insurance now. And it eliminates three, four, five thousand dollars of the out of pocket costs because the wraparound coverage takes care of it all. What's being advertised on TV is kind of tangential to all of this. It has nothing really to do with the initial enrollments, the special enrollments, or even the late enrollments in Part B, which is called a general enrollment. Any questions about that, sir? What do you find, because um, you, you teach this you know, with NITP and others, and what, what do you find surprising that people don't know when they're about ready to enter their retirement phase? Oh, there's 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 so many things. I think I think the major confusion really comes with respect to coordination of benefits with Medicare and health insurance. I think that one's a big one. Uh, some people will enroll in Part B and pay a ton of money for it. And it's not really doing anything for them. They don't realize that. Um, I had a client the other day who was about to enroll her husband who has cancer in Part B, thinking that he would have a special enrollment period because he's over 65 and has been under her work-based health insurance, when in fact she's not retiring and he continues to be under her work-based health insurance. So there is no special enrollment for him. And she, had, she thought that uh, there would be a medical catastrophe if he didn't enroll. And then a lot of the things I talked about earlier pertain to her. So that was good. I think that's where a lot of confusion is. There is confusion from the standpoint of the high three, not, not necessarily having to be at the end of a, of, of a career. Uh, there's, a, there's confusion to some extent with respect to the Fegley five-year rule. And then there's always a little bit of confusion. And I think we do have one more topic to discuss about long-term care. 
many people confuse long-term care with it being a health-related issue and that long-term care would be covered perhaps by Medicare or health insurance. Uh, there is a certain degree of long-term recuperative care associated with care that you receive after an accident or after a qualifying hospital stay. Medicare in those situations will generally cover the first 100 days. Uh, but then if you can't be fixed or rehabilitated after that hospital stay or after that accident and you have the Medicare coverage, you got to wait for the next one because they've, they've done all they can for you. Whereas long-term care, on the other hand, has to do with aging for the most part. Aging, debilitating circumstances, not being able to do activities of daily living without assistance. And because of aging, you're simply not going to improve. It's only going to get worse. Or you might have cognitive issues. Typically in these, these, these times, we hear about people with Alzheimer's. Any form of dementia, if you had long-term care insurance, would trigger the long-term care insurance policy's benefits. Not being able to do activities of daily living, at least, you know, getting dressed feeding yourself, going to the bathroom, uh, getting, up, getting out of chairs, uh, onto beds, into cars, transferring. When you need help with those things, at least two of them, if you had long-term care insurance, that would trigger the benefits. You'd have to go through a period of time where you eliminate uh, the waiting period, but you get the benefits. But people you know, don't really understand that uh, and the ones who are not into long-term care, when the best time to buy it would be, uh, what, what happens if I never use it? Do I ever get a rebate of the premiums? There are things like that that I spend a lot of time on. Do you find somebody at a younger age, say 55, 50, um, and the family has a history of um, issues with regards to age, um, do you suggest that they get it that early? Here's what I tell folks. And my, my uh, thoughts have been influenced by the experts in the field that I've talked to. I've become a sort of a quasi-expert, but, you know, I'm spread out among many different benefits areas. The best time to buy long-term care insurance, if you think it's in your future, you know, if you had situations like I did with my family and aging parents, is early middle age, early to mid-50s. Why would you do it then? Well, number one, you're probably not likely to have too many compromising medical conditions that would otherwise disqualify you. It's a good time to get it. Uh, the advisors say, if you're going to buy it at that point in time, the chances of your needing it are probably a good 30 to 35 years away, if at all. So the last thing you want to do is lock in a plan that does not increase for mm. the inflation to the industry. So you want to build in a feature that compounds the benefit. It increases the benefit compound in a compounded way over time. It's called automatic compound inflation option. And there are a variety of different percentages. Uh, it could be 2%, 3%. That's going to be a little bit more expensive than premium. 4%, I think up to 5% compounding. A 5% compounding will pretty much double the face value of your coverage in 12 or 13 years, which is really a good deal. Uh, but some protection for inflation if you're buying it early. And then they suggest that it's long-term care coverage. It's a hedge. It shouldn't be burdening you to the point where it's such a financial lift that you can't do other things. You shouldn't be paying more than, and this is coming from them, 5% of your gross income. If you are, you're spending too much money. Because once again, the chances of your needing it are slim to none. Uh, like unless you have, as you aptly pointed out, you have parents aged and needed assistance and things like that, if you believe that's going to be in your future. And that's really the paradigm that you're looking at. Those are the indicators. It's probably a good thing to do. That doesn't mean people can't get it later, but the older you are, typically the more expensive long-term care insurance becomes. And the older you get, the more likely it could be for you to pick up a medical condition that you're managing just fine, but causes you to be disqualified from the coverage. So, I wouldn't get it necessarily in my 20s or 30s unless there were some real aberrant reasons based on family history that I would need it earlier. I think the best time to get it is in early middle age when you still have a good medical history that won't disqualify you. Buy a policy that's protected for inflation and buy a policy that is not going to cost you an arm and a leg. Something that you can manage financially along with your other expenses. Let's continue the legacy, or I should say the odyssey of long-term care, because there's some unique things that have happened to the federal plan uh, recently. <clears throat> I think anybody listening to the show probably has heard that the federal plan was suspended 
for new applicants. Um, you know, it's suspended actually through the end of next year. And anyone who's currently subscribed subscribing to the federal plan can't do anything to increase their coverage. Also, people already subscribing to long-term care in the federal plan probably got notice from OPM that their coverage cost is going to increase beginning January 1 of next year. Now, you still will have the option to keep your costs the same, but that's going to mean a reduction in your coverage. You'll have certain options as to what you can reduce to. If you want to keep the same level of coverage you have now, that's going to go up in cost. And the questions that people typically ask very simply are, why is it going up? Why does it wasn't supposed to happen? You know, I got this coverage. I was told it was never going to go up. I'm protecting it for inflation, but now it's going up again. And the simple reason is that, you know, this is an industry that is trying to determine what it needs to take in in premiums in order to fund an increasing claims load. We are living longer, ladies and gentlemen. And as we live, we start having debilitating conditions just as a natural function of aging. And I think this insurance plan, which is relatively new when you compare it to other benefits that have been around, is continually trying to adjust to make certain that what they're offering can eventually be given to you down the road. And it does mean that every now and then they need to make an adjustment. Uh, this happened to the federal plan a number of years ago. I think it was a partnered uh, organization at one time, I believe one of the, they split for whatever the reasons were, leaving the burden to one partner. And obviously costs had to go up for that reason. Things like that will happen. The cost of the long-term care coverage goes up because of more and more people needing the coverage, living longer. So periodically there will be adjustments. The reason for the suspension of the federal plan is largely driven by what do we need to do in order to make certain that our predicted claims load can be met by the amount of premium that we're taking in. So these adjustments have been made and now those premiums are going to go up. It's, it's just, it's, it's the cost of doing business. They can't give you what you need unless they're taking in enough. There are many companies that fled the marketplace who probably should have never been in long-term care uh, coverage to begin with. This was years ago and have not come back. The tried and true organizations, the big companies, Mass Mutual, MetLife, big companies like that continue to offer it, as does the government, but they are making periodic adjustments because they have to, or otherwise they won't be able to meet the claims load. And the good news is that you know, you can keep your same coverage if you're willing to pay the benefit or if you're not willing to pay the increase, I should say, to the benefit. You can pay the same amount and accept a lesser benefit, which many people are doing. They're figuring, what the heck, it's a hedge fund anyway, and the chances are I might not need it. And okay. uh, that's, go ahead. So got an um, email question from one of your fans. And yes. the question is, what is your, you, guess, thought on the WISH Act to improve long-term care. I think you mentioned it earlier, but I just want to make sure. Yeah, yeah. You, you and I kind of talked about this offline. The WISH Act essentially is trying to create a long-term care program along the lines of what we get for Social Security. You know, we pay the premiums for it through a payroll tax and Medicare A. We pay those premiums through a payroll tax. And then we have those benefits when we qualify for them with no further premium. Terrific. What if we did the same thing for long-term care? The proposal, it's not getting any sponsorship, it's, and it's kind of political, is to increase the payroll tax, currently at 6.2% for Social Security, another 1.45% for Medicare A. This would be 0.3% more to set up some kind of a long-term care program for you. I don't know what the depth of that program would be. I, I imagine it's not going to be huge, but this would mean no premiums for it. Uh, that's, what's, that's what the WISH Act is. <clears throat> I don't think that that's something you should even be thinking about right now because currently the bill that's proposing it really has no sponsorship. And let's face it, uh, the idea of raising any tax is kind of a political nightmare right now. It's really hard to get both sides of the aisle to agree on something that would raise taxes. So that being the case, my feeling about the WISH Act is that in principle, it's a great idea. But the likelihood of passage of something like that in the near future, uh, insofar as how it would influence one's desire to get long-term care coverage, is 
don't wait for it. Don't okay. don't spend time waiting for it. Focus on the things that are available to you. We have less than a minute for your final thoughts. <laughs> My final thoughts go back to the excellent question, Bob, that you asked right up front. How can I become as educated as possible about the benefits package? Attend, attend, attend webinars, seminars. You can get to private training. That's fine. And once you've been through, you get a lot of written material. Keep that written material available. It's a digest of thousands of pages of information in a book that's maybe 50 or 60 pages long. And it gives you everything you want to know. And then always remember, reach out to NITP with an email and it's all free. Okay, one more time. Contact point. Contact is info at nitpinc.com. That's info at nitpinc.com. You are the man. Thank you, Sarah. Andrew, thank you. And listeners, thank you. We'll be back. I'm not so sure when, but I hope it's not a long time, Bob. All the best. Sounds good. You too, Bob. All right. Same with you, Andrew. You've been listening to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP and sponsored by WEPA. Please tune in next Monday at 10 a.m. for a topic solely devoted to you, the federal employee. This show can also be heard on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search For Your Benefit. Thanks for listening.